The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. Out in front to Williams. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. Takes a shot, she scores! See the full schedule and find where to watch at IONNWSL.com. Hello, you're listening to the BBC History Magazine podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, the magazine's editor. And I'm Rob Attar, Futures Editor. This is our July 2010 podcast, coming up this month. The Puritan Republic, they felt, was under threat from an MP who was a profane swearer. That was John Spur on the history of swearing. Arya was a very incarnation of the brutality and the repression at the heart of Endgame Vichy. That was Kay Chadwick talking about a French Second World War propagandist. Violence at sea is really part and parcel of business as, uh, as usual. That was Claire Jowitz on Renaissance piracy. This monthly podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, the UK's best-selling history title. Now for our first interview, which is with Swansea University's Professor of History, John Spur, an expert on the history of swearing. He's written on the subject for the July issue of the magazine, and our deputy editor, Sue Wingrove, caught up with him. Rest assured that the air did not turn blue. Now, John, unlike today, where swearing and swear words often seem to be based on sexual terms, in the 15th to 18th centuries, swearing was a religious issue. Why was this? I think swearing had always been a religious issue. For centuries, swearing meant to take the name of God as a guarantee of the truth of what you were saying. It's our modern definition of swearing that is, if you like, the innovation, the novelty. For many centuries, swearing was uh, invoking divine power to guarantee what you said, whether you were swearing to tell the truth, vowing to do something, or even cursing somebody. Invoking divine power to justify and guarantee what one said was a very solemn and uh, sacred activity. But one swore on all kinds of things, not just the name of God. One swore on the saints, on Christ, on the Mass, on the root, the crucifix, uh, and on the Gospels. So one could swear by a wealth of things, and there were numerous occasions on which one could swear. One swore when was appointed to a job, one swore when one was in court, 
One swore, obviously, oaths of allegiance and loyalty to monarchs and rulers, but also people swore oaths to lovers. They vowed to be truthful or to marry. They swore in public places, in the marketplace and in the pub. So swearing was something that people were commonly acquainted with. It's part of everyday life, but it meant taking God's name or the name of a religious activity or person uh, into your mouth and using it to justify and back up what you were saying. By the 19th century, we begin to see this new form of swearing, which is familiar to us in the 21st, of swearing which is scatological, sexual, or even um, obscene. That kind of swearing, the use of what is linguists call intensifiers, and bloody is a good use of, of a, a word that many people think is religious in origin, but in fact, there's no evidence at all. It's anything other than what the linguists call an intensifier, a way of emphasizing and perhaps expressing an ang a sense of anger that uh, many people find very helpful in daily life. But that kind of swearing, the modern kind of swearing, is something that is relatively recent. And for many centuries in uh, British and in European culture, swearing was a religious activity. I see. So all the oaths that you've described um, in court or to a lover or so, so on and so forth, these were what we would call solemn oaths. Um, and the, the, the others we would call profane oaths. Solemn and profane oaths are two sides of the same coin. A solemn oath is an oath that's used in a solemn occasion, whether that's in court or indeed in professing one's love to, to a girlfriend or boyfriend. A profane oath is using God's name in a trivial or a, an unsuitable occasion or context. So profane oaths were something that people, if you like, it's like beauty. It was in the eye of the beholder. Common profane swearing, as it became known in the 16th and 17th centuries, was really swearing where God's name was misused to either attack someone or insult someone. Profane swearing was also the term used to describe people who swore by God that the fish they caught in uh, was you know, two foot long rather than one foot long. It was also, in, in other words, used in trivial, uh, on trivial occasions. And many people regarded profane swearing as a very... Uh, heinous sin and a very dangerous one. I see. Now, you've described in your feature how in the English Reformation swearing was particularly frowned upon. Um, and in fact, some religious oaths were worse than others. Why was that at that particular time? Well, the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century really changed the rules of the game. For over two centuries, the Protestant reformers sought to change religious belief and behaviour. And for many of them, behaviour was the only indication of religious belief. So if someone still swore by my lady, in other words, by the Virgin Mary, or by the mass, in other words, by the religious ceremony uh, that was at the heart of Roman Catholicism, many Protestant reformers believed this showed that they were still, in the heart of hearts, Roman Catholics. So to some extent, reformers wanted to purge the language of any reference to the old religion and its uh, beliefs and practices. But there was another aspect of this too. The reformers took the Bible as their benchmark for almost all things in life. And they found the Bible had very strict rules, though not always consistent ones, on the use of oaths and swearing. Oaths and swearing were meant to be used in truth, in righteousness and in justice. In other words, on solemn and important occasions. 
And in parts of the Bible, there are prohibitions on the use of oaths, and indeed there, is, there are two occasions on which the Bible seems to, and Christ seems to, ban the use of swearing at all. And so some religious groups, Baptists, Quakers, and a few others, took this as an absolute ban on all forms of swearing, not only the trivial and profane, but even solemn ones. So Quakers famously refused to take oaths in courts of law. And this was used as a way of uh, marking them out and discriminating against them, because obviously the reformers still regarded oath-taking as vital to the good working of society and as vital to the uh, legal process. Um, Now, you described in your feature um, how people saw bad language as a sign of general moral decline. Um, But also, in the 17th and 18th centuries, there were actually laws passed that criminalised swearing. What were the laws and what happened if you broke them? The laws against profane swearing really began in the 17th century under James I. James issued, uh, very early on in 1606, a ban on swearing on the stage, which led some of the Shakespearean plays to be rewritten. But a statute of 1624 created an offence that JPs in the local uh, towns and villages could, could punish. For every profane oath, a fine was imposed of 12 pence. And for those who were too poor to pay, they had to spend three hours in the stocks for every profane oath. That law was used periodically and by enthusiastic JPs to crack down on social nuisances. It was a kind of equivalent of perhaps a modern ASBO. It was a way of targeting people who were socially disruptive. Of course, many people would be fined for more than one oath, and some people would be spending more than the three hours in, in the, uh, the stocks. Those laws were, were improved or tightened up uh, across the 17th and into the 18th century. The statute in 1695 under William III imposed fines that were socially graded. So servants, day labourers, common soldiers and sailors were fined 12 pence for every oath, but so, higher social ranks were fined two shillings for every oath. So people were fined, some poor people were put in the stocks, and there was, of course, this clear sense that was repeated uh, in sermons by JPs and judges giving speeches that profane swearing was a social danger. And so finally, could you finish by telling us the cautionary tale of one particularly foul-mouthed MP um, in the 17th century? A very interesting example of the way that swearing was regarded as socially, politically, uh, morally dangerous is the case of Henry Glapthorne, a man who became an MP in the Parliament of um, Oliver Cromwell in the mid-1650s. Glapthorne was from the Isle of Ely, and he had obviously made enemies among his constituents, 400 of whom petitioned for his removal. And they argued that Glapthorne was a swearer, a curser, a frequenter of alehouses, a companion of lewd women, but they particularly emphasised the bad language. The phrases were, by God's wounds, by God's blood, by Jesus Christ, by the eternal God, God damn me, and others. All of which they felt were unsuitable language for a man who was to represent them and who was to forge the Puritan 
revolution and a Puritan uh, regime, which many of them uh, had signed up for under Oliver Cromwell. They said, it is a public concernment, for if wickedness gets into high places, misery will be to the Commonwealth. So the Puritan Republic, they felt, was under threat from an MP who was a profane swearer. And the Council of State, the, the ruling body, the cabinet of the day, agreed with them. And Henry Glapthorne was sacked. He was, as it were, sacked from Parliament. So Henry Glapthorne did lose his seat because his constituents could not tolerate his bad language. You can read John Spare's feature in the July issue of BBC History magazine. Sadly, that's the last time we'll hear an interview by Sue on a podcast as she has now left the title. All the team wish her well. Our next interview is with Kay Chadwick of the University of Liverpool. Kay has written a fascinating article in our latest issue about Philippe Henriot, the most notorious radio broadcaster for occupied France in the Second World War. Henriot was a gifted propagandist who sought to persuade the French to support the German occupiers and repel the Allies in the French resistance. I spoke to Kay recently about Henriot's brief career and how the Free French sought to challenge him in a gripping radio war. What was the situation in France when Philippe Henriot began his radio broadcast as Secretary of State for Propaganda in 1944? Uh, in January 1944, when Henriot became Secretary of State for Information and Propaganda, the war was actually in, effectively lost for the Germans. By that time, France had been occupied by Germany in whole or in part for about three and a half years. The northern zone since the summer of 1940 and the southern so-called Free Zone, which was centred on Vichy, um, since 1942. The Allies had invaded North Africa in November 1942 from where they were preparing for an invasion of Europe. And there was no longer any real question about whether the Allies would triumph. It was much more a question of when this would happen and what the scale of death and destruction would be in the process. In France, resistance groups grew significantly in 1943 and became increasingly organized and effective. The Milice, which was Vichy's thuggish paramilitary force, was also created in 1943 to crush internal dissent, and it worked willingly with the German occupier to that end. In December 1943, the Germans initiated a reshuffle at Vichy and pressed for Henriot's appointment to propaganda. Um, this was because they preferred his decidedly more radical pro-collaboration voice to those of Vichy's incumbent propagandists. His six-month period of office, which ran from the 6th of January to the 28th of June 1944, corresponded to what we might call Vichy's endgame. This is a period which was characterized by a radicalization of the regime, matched by an increasingly vigorous propaganda effort. Aria was a very incarnation of the brutality and the repression at the heart of endgame Vichy. So at the time, how supportive of the Vichy regime were the French people? Well, by early 1944, the general mood in France was one of weariness and anxiety. This was exemplified in a widespread desire for the war to reach its end, but a very real fear of events yet to come. Public aversion and hostility to both Vichy and the Germans were common. Most French were anti-German by the autumn of 1940, and this, this feeling was reinforced as the occupier's so-called correctness rapidly faded from view in 1941. In contrast, Vichy initially enjoyed a certain degree of popularity. Poutin, who was head of state, was regarded by many as France's providential man and Vichy's reactionary program for national revolution, and this is something which characterized the regime until spring 1942, 
Um, this went down well with many who had hated the Third Republic, which was France's previous regime, the pre-war regime. However, disaffection from Vichy did develop with time. It was evident as early as the winter of 1940-41 as food and power shortages hit hard, a situation which was echoed during the winter of 1941-42. But it really intensified from spring 1942, with the return to office in April of a man called Pierre Laval, who was a notorious pro-collaborationist who became France's president, and then in July with the roundup of Jews in Paris. In early 1943, disaffection from Vichy became much more marked as a result of the institution of a compulsory labor program. This was something which required all young men born between 1920 and 1922 to go to work in Germany. And it was a program which served especially to accelerate public awareness of Vichy's collusion with the occupier, of its failure to protect the people, notwithstanding its claims otherwise. And indeed, by the summer of 1943, Vichy's cause was irrevocably aligned with that of Germany. By early 1944, as Henri entered office, Vichy was effectively a hardline regime which bore little resemblance to its earliest incarnation in 1940 and from which many French felt disconnected. Philippe Henriot, who becomes Minister of Propaganda, what kind of a man was he? Well, he was somebody who was certainly very well known to the French by the time he took that job on. During the 1930s, he'd been a principal speaker for the Catholic Right. He'd had a number of bruising encounters with opposition representatives in the National Assembly, which is France's Parliament. And these had marked him out as a skillful speaker, and they were frequently reported on in the press at home and abroad. From the evidence available to us of what he did and what he said, both during and before the war, he emerges as something of a notorious political cutthroat, an intelligent, a highly ambitious individual, someone who was admired for his oratorical talent, but was widely disliked as a person, both by those who held the same political views and by his rivals. Many considered him arrogant and dismissive and brutish, although it seems that he could turn on the charm when appropriate. Indeed, Madame Pétain, the head of state's wife, is reported to have been enchanted by him and to have been an avid listener of his broadcasts. What inspired him to broadcast a Vichy? Well, in 1940, Henri's commitment to Vichy was immediate. This commitment had its roots in his traditional right-wing Catholic upbringing, which positioned him in the political camp which condemned the Republic and promoted order and nationalism. Inevitably, therefore, the authoritarian Vichy regime was a natural outlet for Henriot's anti-Republican prejudices, and he quickly became one of the main speakers and notable orators for its program of regeneration, which was known as the National Revolution. And this set out to regenerate France morally, socially, economically, politically. It was a wide-scale program. Henriot initially regarded collaboration with Germany as a means for France to have a better future, becoming a zealous advocate of collaboration only really once Russia entered the war in June 1941. And he believed that only Germany at that point could now save Europe, Christian Europe, from the godless monster of communism. From 1942 to the end of 1943, he broadcast this message weekly on Radio Vichy, although he didn't hold any official post within the regime until he was appointed to propaganda at the behest of the Germans in early 1944. And how effective a propagandist was he? I think Arya was Vichy's most infamous practitioner of propaganda, someone we today refer to as a spin doctor. 
And radio made him a media star well before that concept had really developed. His appointment in January 1944 was greeted by the French with general disfavour. Many thought that it was simply further and inevitable evidence that Vichy was hand in glove with the occupier. But despite this, interest in his broadcasts grew rapidly. Much of his success in attracting a sizable radio audience is credited to listeners' fascination with his oratorical talent, whether or not they were convinced by his words. Ariel's eloquence was a tool he used daily in the articulation of his propaganda, most notably in the verbal sparring with the free French broadcasters in London and Algiers. And those who were enthusiastic for collaboration were delighted with his performance. One of these, the collaborator Lucien Roberté, for instance, believed that Ariel had the ability to render complex themes comprehensible to all. A man called Cicely Huddleston, who was a British journalist sympathetic to Vichy and who spent the war years in France, claimed that the French couldn't refrain from listening to Henriot, so forceful and eloquent were his broadcasts. Now, you might expect that from those who are sympathetic to what Henriot is trying to do, but his rivals also recognised his skill. Jean-Aubert who broadcast for the Free French from London, conceded that even those who objected to what Henriot said recognized just how powerful a speaker he was. A case in point is the writer François Moyac, who had admired Henriot's oratory in the 1930s, but who described his wartime propaganda as a massive dose of poison, which he injected daily into people's minds. Nonetheless, as Moyac's son Claude records, his father couldn't stop himself from listening daily to Henriot's broadcasts, he deemed these captivating and exasperating at one and the same time and would apparently refute his arguments as each broadcast progressed. Put simply, Arion knew how to argue. He knew how to engage an audience. And in the difficult months before the landings finally took place, it's this ability that made him extremely dangerous. From January onwards, he relentlessly manipulated the attitudes, the emotions, the fragilities of the French. And his approach rested principally on a rhetorical assault on the Allies, on the Maquis, the domestic resistance movement, on the Free French. And he also promoted Vichy, its representatives, its structures. Throughout, what he tried to do was to work to foster defeatism in the French, to challenge their allegiances by connecting the difficulties of their daily lives to the actions of the Allies, the Maquis and the Free French. So his message to his listeners was quite simple. Their fears and concerns were well-founded, and his was the voice of truth and reason, not the voices of his rival broadcasters abroad. There were quite a few different radio broadcasters, propagandists at the time. Mm -hmm. What set Henriot apart from the others? Oh, plenty. His rhetorical skill, for one thing. Before Henriot took on the job at propaganda, Vichy Radio had long been criticised as insipid and monotonous. And in contrast, the BBC was considered much more lively, much better informed. Henriot changed this. He revived and he radicalised Vichy propaganda. He made it proactive rather than reactive. It's probable that he drew a certain number of listeners simply for entertainment value, because in the grand French rhetorical tradition... The French appreciated a good verbal duel between evenly matched adversaries. And this connects to a second way, I think, in which his approach differed from earlier Vichy propagandists. Aware of the popularity of the Free French at the BBC, Henriot chose not to ignore them, but to challenge them directly. He took the initiative in his attacks rather than simply reacting to what they said. 
And he no doubt judged that in this way he could more effectively counter their arguments and undermine their influence than if he simply ignored them. And in particular, he repeatedly challenged the Free French's interpretation of the war, sought to undermine their claim to represent France, and packaged them as, as shirkers by emphasizing their absence from the homeland. We've talked about the Free French a couple of times already. They were broadcasting in London via the BBC, and mm. how did they seek to counter what Henri was doing in France? I think it's fair to say that thus far they'd encountered no other Vichy propagandist of Ario's experience and skill, and the war of words which ensued proved to be a bitterly fought battle. And for both parties, the stakes were pretty high because the prize was influence over public opinion in the run-up to these long-promised Allied landings, which thus far had failed to materialise. What the Free French did was to fight a very hard counter-offensive against Ariel. They replied to his direct attacks with forthright broadcasts of their own. They warned audiences back home to be wary of his lies. They charged him with scaremongering, with promoting defeatism. And they basically undertook a sustained campaign to encourage the French not to give up, to have faith in an eventual Allied victory. So they promoted the resistance and they attacked the Milice, Vichy's paramilitary force. They defended their own legitimacy to speak to France and for France. And they challenged Orio in return to talk about his love of the Germans. And that's a challenge that he repeatedly ignored. And arguments and counter-arguments went back and forth across the airwaves in this way throughout this whole period from January to June 1944. Can we see a clear winner in this radio war? Well, overall, I think that Ario and the BBC Free French were more or less evenly matched. It's fair to say, though, that Ario seems to have taken the Free French by surprise with his proactive combative approach, because from the early days of February 1944, by then settled in his stride at propaganda, it was Ario who mostly initiated the exchanges. And this assertion of initiative repeatedly compelled the Free French at the BBC to meet him on his chosen ground, in order to counter-attack. And this appeared to give him the advantage over them. He often seemed to be one step ahead of them. He always had a ready answer for whatever they threw at him. But the Free French had both the opportunity and the will to damage Henriot, and they did gradually turn the tables on him. In April 1944, he lost some of his ascendancy when the Free French were able to demonstrate beyond any doubt that Ario had misrepresented the heroic exploits of resistors in the region of Haute-Savoie. And in May, he was rattled by the Free French's relentless demands that he share with his listeners his thoughts on the Germans. And few listeners, in fact, can have missed the fact that he had no direct answer of substance on this specific terrain that they'd chosen. And then with the liberation underway in June, the Free French clearly grasped more of the initiative and embarked on a major offensive, obliging Oreo to respond on their ground and so definitively changing the dynamic of their battle. This radio war fought between Oreo and the Free French was, I think, an important feature of the end game of the occupation. Very importantly, it illustrates that psychological warfare was considered a key activity in determining the outcome of the war. Ario proved to be the Free French's principal adversary. He was a, a redoubtable orator, ready to broach any topic he judged valuable to exploit, willing to employ any strategy that might work. But we shouldn't underestimate the Free French. They were also a formidable team. And the extensive body of broadcast which Ario directed at them 
is evidence that he was well aware of their power and their influence and of the need to counter their words. What happened to Henriot in the end? The radio war between Henri and the Free French came to a very abrupt end when he was assassinated by the resistance on the morning of the 28th of June 1944. That assassination itself demonstrates, I think, that his propaganda was still considered to represent a serious threat, even though the liberation was by then well underway. Of course, D-Day had happened on the 6th of June 1944. The Free French at the BBC were quick to comment on the assassination. Speaking that evening, the main spokesman for Free France, Maurice Schumann, said that they wouldn't hide their joy at Henriot's death, that France would do very well without his voice. Henri, of course, was a key player in Vichy, and he was accorded a state funeral. And it was a pretty impressive ceremonial stage for this dead orator by the now clearly dying Vichy regime. And it took place on July the 3rd at the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris. That evening, the Free French retaliated with a highly emotional broadcast by Pierre Dac, in which he evoked the many French who died for France's freedom, as opposed to Henriot, who had died in the service of Germany. So, in a sense, if you want to go back to the previous question and say, well, was there a clear winner in this radio war? Well, not really, but the Free French clearly had the last words in the six-month-long exchange. Henriot's voice did live on for some weeks from beyond the grave, it was resuscitated each evening in repeats of his broadcasts, which were demanded by the occupier, suggesting that for the German propaganda machine, Arya was truly irreplaceable. But the Free French clearly felt no need to reply to someone they considered to be an on-call ghost. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. That was Kay Chadwick of the University of Liverpool. You can read more about Philip Henriot in our latest issue. And finally, I've been chatting with Nottingham Trent University's Professor Claire Jowett about piracy in the reigns of Queen Elizabeth I and James I, and this follows her cover feature in the July issue of the magazine. Now, I'm afraid the sound quality on this interview is a bit ropey, so apologies for that. If you can bear with it, I think you'll find the subject matter interesting. Claire, you've written uh, a feature in the magazine about uh, about uh, Renaissance piracy, which is a fascinating topic. So I think the first thing we need to find out is how common was piracy um, in the Renaissance in the in the 16th and 17th centuries? Well, it's very common. Um, it, uh, violence at sea is really part and parcel of business as, uh, as usual mm. um, on, 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 on maritime spaces. There are, of course, peaks and troughs. If a, a nation is at war, then you would expect much more, you know, hostilities, much more violence at sea um, than, than if a nation is at peace. And of course, it also depends on how piracy is defined. Yeah. And this is, you know, uh, quite a flexible area in the Renaissance. You know, there are um, uh, reprisal, letters of mark, uh, privateering, which is a, a later term, but 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 that those kind of, uh, of activities are, are in existence much, much earlier 
Yeah. So it really does depend on the kind of the semantics of 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 who's saying it and who and why they are saying it. Why someone is being called a pirate? Okay. So there, so the, the division between the pirate and the privateer that doesn't that doesn't really come into play in in the period we're talking about. Um, there are commissions issued by, you know, rulers and powerful individuals so that uh, a particular uh, ship with a particular captain and crew is licensed to go and go out and uh, take goods to the value of, of a certain amount as reprisal for uh, an earlier attack. So um, it, 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 it is a, a, a flexible con- concept in, in, in the Renaissance. Mm. Um, it's not come to have the, the sort of uh, connotations of an international crime uh, uh, so that pirates are seen as hostage human generous, which mm. is the, the, the modern uh, understanding of, of piracy. And that definite criminalisation of piracy uh, broadly uh, comes at the turn of the 18th century. So piracy is regulated against in statute from, from 1536, mm-hmm. but it's a lot more flexible in the 16th and 17th centuries than, than, than now. Okay. Um, so one of, the, one of the things you've been exploring in the feature for us is um, sort of how the how the English state needed and benefited from piracy, which which seems to me a very interesting um, aspect of the story. So, to, talking about Elizabeth the first, um, you know, the, the, the long lived queen of, yeah. of the 16th century. How far did did she accept and encourage piracy, and and if so, why did she do that? Well, she is she is again uh, flexible in her kind of uh, understanding of what piracy is in, in certain ways. Like, by what I mean by that is that at certain times, individuals that other people would call pirates could be useful to the Elizabethan state. Um, uh, there's a sort of a broad context here, which is uh, from the 1490s, um, the Treaty of Tordesillas had uh, reserved the New World and all the other regions still to be discovered for Spain and Portugal, and in so doing had left out England from those uh, new lands and profitable trade routes to be established. So the countries that were excluded, including England, were, were, were you know, aggrieved at this. So uh, when England is at war with Spain in the 16th century, this is also kind of part of the backstory, part of the background. So that Elizabethan England, like Francis Drake, for example, is called, uh, you know, insistently called a pirate by the Spanish, but to Elizabeth I, he's extremely useful. And even when he uh, is undertaking some voyages, not necessarily uh, completely and utterly under uh, the permission of the crown, because he is coming back with, with, with you know, uh, enormous amounts of, of treasure, which the, the crown can then take a part of, she is uh, authorizing retrospectively some of the activities, some of this kind of violence at sea. So she was she was happy to take a quite a pragmatic view on on that's right on what that's piracy right. was then that's right at times though of course uh, there is a continuum here and some 
pirates who are uh, that the state defines as pirates are you know she is issuing proclamations against piracy and uh, punishing pirates if they are falling foul of the statutes that are in place it's just that that what I'm trying to, 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 to get across is that, there, that it depends on, you, you know, who is defining you as a pirate and whether uh, there, are, there, there can be some kind of flexibility, there is flexibility within that. Mm. Did, the, did the pirates themselves know where they stood? Not always, no. And uh, certain particular figures at certain points are defined as pirates and are, you know... Um, being chased by uh, pirate catchers, the state pirate catchers, but at other points are being used in some of the expansionist and aggressive uh, maritime endeavours uh, in, in the national interest. Uh, the, the pirate Clinton Atkinson, for example, who is hung in 1583 for piracy, at other points, is harnessed into state service. So there is a sort of, um, you know, a movement in and out. So these categories, it's very difficult to be, uh, you know, hard and fast about them. Mm, okay. But um, Elizabeth's successor, James the First, he he did take a more strict line uh, about piracy. Was was he a bit easier to understand in, in the way he where he stood on piracy? Um, yes and no. Mm. The, 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 the end of the war with Spain um, makes a big difference in terms of uh, the Crown's policy towards violence at sea. Um, James had a different uh, foreign policy than Elizabeth, and, and, and Rex Pacificus in particular was, was about a kind of a concord, uh, and James fashioning a decisive diplomatic role for himself within uh, a variety of, of, of nation states within Europe. And obviously, if your nationals are committing uh, atrocities at sea and acts of violence against foreign shipping, it causes considerable diplomatic embarrassment. So generally speaking, yes, James does have a, a different attitude to, to piracy and personally he finds men of, of violence despicable and there are repeated pro proclamations issued against pirates but he also has a, a, a problem in that the navy in the early 17th century was not really uh, equipped to catch uh, to capture pirates uh, regularly or, or, or with any real degree of success. So piracy is prolific. There are also a lot of underemployed and unemployed seamen returning from wars, and uh, England is seen as, as a nation of pirates. So what James in the end has to do is in 1612, he does issue a general pardon against pirates, and some pirates do come back into orthodox uh, allegiances, orthodox national identity. Henry Mannering, for example, who has been enormously successful uh, in, in the second decade of the 17th century as a pirate, particularly attacking uh, Spanish shipping, is, is one of the pardoned pirates. And he, um, James, uh, is, he likes Mannering, and uh, he becomes a gentleman of the bedchamber. Uh, and he is a sort of a, a poacher-turned um, gamekeeper because he writes a treatise for the king about how to catch 
pirates. So again, there is some flexibility. Just in summary then, can you try and explain to us whether whether England benefited from piracy uh, during the period or whether it sort of ended up suffering from it? Um, it again comes back to the issue of how you define piracy. Mm. If you are seeing pirates as, as, as uh the, the state-sponsored individuals that, you know, Elizabethan Sea Dogs, Drake, Rawley, etc., then there are obvious benefits of their activities. If you are seeing piracy as um, disruptive to international trade, causing diplomatic embarrassment, then obviously it's a, it's a, it's a much more negative view. So we're again coming back to the idea of, of how you define piracy uh, and um, the, the ways that the, the, the term is being used. Hmm. Okay. Thank you, Claire. That's fascinating stuff. Claire Jowett's new book, The Culture of Piracy, 1580-1630, is published by Ashgate Press. BBC History magazine is published each month in the United Kingdom and costs £3.80. Look out for it in your local newsagent or supermarket, or you can take advantage of one of our great subscription deals, whether you're in the UK or overseas. Details of this are in the magazine and also on the website, which is www.bbchistorymagazine.com. And that's it for our July 2010 podcast. Next month, we'll be hearing from a Second World War interpreter and also discussing the Normans and the demise of Britain's imperial heroes. I hope you'll be able to join us for that.